Welcome to a reading of the Adult Sabbath School Bible Study Guide for July, August and September 2012. Dealing with Paul's Epistles to the Thessalonians, it's brought to you by Christian Services for the Blind and Hearing Impaired, the Sabbath School Department and through the services of Adventist Media Network. Lesson 1, June 30 to July 6, The Gospel Comes to Thessalonica. Sabbath, June 30. Before we start, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we start this new quarter, looking at the books written to the Thessalonians by Paul, we pray that your Holy Spirit will be here to guide us. May we find more of your love, your compassion and your concern for us. May we find the salvation that comes only from you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our memory text this week is 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. And we also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, You accepted it not as the word of men, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. Let's read that again, 1 Thessalonians 2.13. And we also thank God continually, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. Our key thought for this week is... Our assurance of God's promises must be based on our confidence in His holy scriptures. The young pastor sat outside with a young woman who had just been baptized. Much to his surprise, she said, I need to be baptized again. When the pastor asked why, she responded, There are things that I didn't tell the senior pastor about my past. Thus began a long conversation about forgiveness in Christ, which she hungrily consumed. When the pastor finished praying with her, a huge downpour suddenly drenched them both. Eyes shining, the young woman said, I'm being baptized again. A gracious God often provides living tokens such as this unexpected rain to assure believers that they are right with him. But our confidence in God will be even more solidly grounded when it is based on the clear teaching of His Word. In this lesson, we'll see that the fulfilment of prophecy provided solid assurance to the new believers in Thessalonica. Sunday, July 1, the preachers pay a price. Question. Read Acts chapter 16, verses 9 to 40. According to the passage, why do the Philippians react so negatively to the gospel? What important principle can we find in their reaction that we always need to be wary of ourselves? In what other ways can this principle be made manifest, even in the lives of professed Christians? Let's read Acts 16, verses 9 to 40. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. 
Now after he had seen the vision, immediately he sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. Therefore, sailing from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and the next day came to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the foremost city of that part of Macedonia, a colony. And we were staying in that city for some days, and on the Sabbath day we went out of the city to the riverside where prayer was customarily made, and we sat down and spoke to the women who met there. Now a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of the Thyatira, who worshipped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household were baptized, she begged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. So she persuaded us. Now it happened, as we went to prayer, that a certain slave girl, possessed with the spirit of divination, met us, who brought her masters much profit by fortune-telling. This girl followed Paul and us, and cried out, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to us the way of salvation. And this she did for many days. But Paul, greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out that very hour. But when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. And they brought them to the magistrates and said, These men, being Jews, exceedingly trouble our city, and they teach customs which are not lawful for us, being Romans, to receive or observe. Then the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. And when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Having received such a charge, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awaking from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. But Paul called with a loud voice, saying, Do yourself no harm, for we are all here. Then he called for a light, ran in, and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? So they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes. And immediately he and all his family were baptized. Now, when he had brought them into his house, he set food before them, and he rejoiced, having believed in God with all his household. And when it was day, the magistrates sent the officers, saying, Let those men go. So the keeper of the prison reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Now, therefore, depart and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us openly, uncondemned Romans, and have thrown us into prison. And now, do they put us out secretly? 
No, indeed, let them come themselves and get us out. And the officers told these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. Then they came and pleaded with them and brought them out and asked them to depart from the city. So they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia, and when they had seen the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. The gospel is the good news of God's mighty actions in Christ that lead to forgiveness, acceptance and transformation, as we find in Romans 1:16 and 17. Through sin, the whole world was condemned. Through the death and resurrection of Jesus, the whole world was given a new opportunity to have the eternal life that God originally wanted for all humanity. God's mighty work was done for us while we were still sinners. Romans 5.8 This work of redemption was accomplished outside of us by Jesus, and we can add nothing to it. Nothing. Yet, the gospel becomes real in our lives only when we accept not only its condemnation of our sins, but God's forgiveness of those sins through Jesus. Being that the gospel is such good news and is free, why would anyone resist or fight against it? The answer is simple. Accepting the gospel calls us to set aside confidence in self and in worldly things such as money, power and sexual attractiveness. Money, sex and power are good things when submitted to the will and ways of God. But when people cling to these trivial matters that substitute for the assurance of the gospel, the gospel and those who proclaim it become a threat. Read 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verses 1 and 2. Paul and Silas entered Thessalonica in pain, their bodies bearing the cuts and bruises they had received from their heavy beating and confinement in Philippi. But tokens of the mighty power of God had encouraged their hearts. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verses 1 and 2. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. They boldly entered the synagogue at Thessalonica in spite of their pain and spoke again of the Messiah who had changed their lives and sent them on a mission to preach the good news in places where it had not been heard before. So to finish today, what are the things of the world that, if we're not careful, can draw us away from the Lord? Why then is it so important to keep the cross and its meaning always at the centre of our thoughts, especially when the lure of the world seems the strongest? Monday, July 2, Paul's Preaching Strategy Question. What does Acts 17, 1-3 tell us about the where, the when, and the how of Paul's preaching strategy in Thessalonica? 
Acts 17, verses 1 to 3. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonica, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I preach to you, is the Christ. Although First Thessalonians was among Paul's earliest letters, both his theology and missionary strategy were well developed by the time he arrived in Thessalonica. The first step in Paul's missionary strategy was to attend the local synagogue on the Sabbath. This was natural because the Sabbath was a good time to reach Jews in large numbers. However, more than just a missionary strategy was at work here. Paul would have taken time for prayer and worship on the Sabbath, even if no Jews or no synagogue was available. Let's just check Acts 16, verse 13. And on the Sabbath day, we went out of the city to the riverside where prayer was customarily made, and we sat down and spoke to the women who met there. It was not uncommon in those days for Jews to invite synagogue visitors to speak, especially if they had lived in Jerusalem as Paul and Silas had. The congregation would have been eager to hear news of Jewish life in other places. They also would have been interested in any new ideas the visitors had discovered from their study of the scriptures. So, Paul's strategy was a natural fit with the synagogue environment. The second step in Paul's strategy was to preach directly from their common scriptures, the Old Testament. He also began with a topic of great interest to the Jews of the time, the Messiah. The Christ is the Greek equivalent of the Messiah in the Hebrew. Using texts from the Old Testament, Paul demonstrated that the Messiah would first have to suffer before he could obtain the glory with which the Jews were familiar. In other words, the popular glorious version of the Messiah's mission was only part of the picture. When the Messiah would first appear, he would be a suffering servant rather than a royal conqueror. Third, having established a fresh picture of the Messiah in their minds, Paul went on to tell the story of Jesus. He explained how Jesus' life conformed to the pattern of the biblical prophecy that he had just shared with them. No doubt he added stories about his own previous doubts and opposition and also spoke of the convincing power of his personal encounter with the exalted Christ. According to Luke in chapter 24, Paul's preaching strategy in Thessalonica followed the same pattern that Jesus had used with his disciples after the resurrection. So, to finish today, notice that Paul sought to reach people where they were using that with which they were familiar. Why is this strategy so important? Think about those whom you want to reach. How can you learn to start where they are and not where you are? Tuesday, July 3, Two Views of the Messiah 
Since ancient times, readers of the Old Testament have noticed a variety of perspectives in the prophecies pointing toward the Messiah. Most Jews and early Christians identified two major strands in the Messianic prophecies. On the one hand, there were texts that pointed toward a royal Messiah, a conquering king who would bring justice to the people and extend Israel's rule to the ends of the earth. On the other hand, there were texts that suggested the Messiah would be a suffering servant, humiliated and rejected. The mistake that many made was in not understanding that all these texts were referring to the same person, to different aspects of his work at different times. Question. Read Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 1 to 6, Isaiah 9, 1 to 7, and Isaiah 53, 1 to 6, and Zechariah 9, verse 9. List the characteristics of the future deliverer that you find in these texts. What kind of conflicting images appear here? Jeremiah 23, verses 1 to 6. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, says the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel against the shepherds who feed my people, You have scattered my flock, driven them away, and not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for the evil of your doings, says the Lord. But I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all countries where I have driven them, and bring them back to their folds, and they shall be fruitful and increase. I will set up shepherds over them who will feed them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed, nor shall they be lacking, says the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In his days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. Now this is the name by which he will be called, the Lord our Righteousness. And then in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 to 7. Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed, as when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterwards more heavily oppressed her. By the way of the sea beyond the Jordan in Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. You have multiplied the nation and increased its joy. They rejoice before you according to the joy of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you have broken the yoke of his burden, and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian. For every warrior's sandal from the noisy battle, and garments rolled in blood, will be used for burning and fuel of fire. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end, upon the throne of David, and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with justice and judgment from that time forward, even for ever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. 
and Isaiah 53 verses 1 to 6. Who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And finally, Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. These texts were puzzling in advance of the Messiah's coming. On the one hand, the royal messianic texts usually contained no hint of suffering or humiliation. On the other hand, the suffering servant texts usually described the Messiah as having little power or worldly authority. One way that the Jews of Jesus' day resolved this problem was to see the suffering servant as a symbol of the whole nation and its sufferings in the course of exile and occupation. By removing these texts from the messianic equation, many Jews expected the royal or conquering Messiah. This king, like David, would throw off the occupiers and restore Israel's place among the nations. Of course, a major problem that results from removing the suffering servant texts from the equation is that there are indeed significant Old Testament texts that blend the two major characteristics of the Messiah. They describe the same person. What is less clear at first glance is whether those characteristics occur at the same time or one after the other. As shown in Acts 17, 2 and 3, Paul walked the Jews of Thessalonica through these Messianic Old Testament texts, and they together explored their significance. So, to finish the day, in ancient times, the Jews were confused about the first coming of the Messiah. Today, we find much confusion about the second coming as well. What should this tell us about the importance of truly seeking to understand Bible truth? Why can false doctrine be so problematic? Wednesday, July 4, Suffering Before Glory Jesus, like Paul, studied the Old Testament and drew the conclusion that the Messiah would have to suffer these things and then enter his glory, Luke 24, 26. 
The have to of Luke 24.26 translates the same word as Acts 17.3, where Paul says the Messiah had to suffer. For Jesus and Paul, the priority of suffering before glory was written into the prophecies long before they were to have occurred. The question is then, on what Old Testament basis did they come to this conclusion? They likely would have noticed that the most significant figures in the Old Testament had a prolonged period of suffering before they entered into the glory period of their lives. Joseph spent some thirteen years in prison before ascending to the role of Prime Minister of Egypt. Moses spent forty years chasing sheep through the desert before taking up his role as the powerful leader of the Exodus. David spent many years as a fugitive, some of that time in foreign lands before being elevated to kingship. Daniel was a prisoner of war and was even condemned to death before his elevation to the position of Prime Minister of Babylon. In the Old Testament stories of these servants of God, there are foreshadowings of the Messiah, who would also suffer and be humiliated before being elevated to his royal role. The capstone of this New Testament conviction is found in the most widely quoted Old Testament text in the New Testament, Isaiah chapter 53. The suffering servant of Isaiah was despised, rejected and sorrowful. Like a sanctuary lamb, he was slaughtered on account of our sins, according to the will of the Lord. But after the suffering of his soul, Isaiah 53.11, he would justify many and receive a powerful inheritance. For the writers of the New Testament, Isaiah 53 was the key to the Messiah's role. Paul would certainly have preached this text in Thessalonica. According to Isaiah 53, the Messiah would not appear kingly or powerful at the time of his first appearance. In fact, he would be rejected by many of his own people. But that rejection would be the prelude to the glorious Messiah of Jewish expectation. With this in mind, Paul was able to show that the Jesus he had come to know was, in fact, the Messiah whom the Old Testament had foretold. So to finish today, prayerfully read through Isaiah 53, realizing that it's talking about what the Lord our Creator went through just so that you personally can have eternal life. In light of what this amazing truth tells us about the character of God, why should Christ be first and foremost in our lives? Let's read Isaiah chapter 53. Who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of dry ground. He has no comeliness or form, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. 
We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living, for the transgressions of my people he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Thursday, July 5, A Church is Born Question. According to Acts chapter 17, verses 1 to 4 and verse 12, what classes of people made up the core of the Thessalonian church plant? Acts chapter 17, verses 1 to 4. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonica, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining the, and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I preach to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded, and a great multitude of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women, joined Paul and Silas. And verse 12, Therefore many of them believed, and also not a few of the Greeks, prominent women as well as men. A part of Paul's missionary strategy was to the Jew first, and also to the Greek, as he said in Romans 1.16. During Paul's ministry, the Jews regularly received the first opportunity to hear and accept the gospel. And the fact is that, according to the Bible, Many Jews in Paul's time did accept Jesus as the Messiah. Later, as the church started to apostatize and reject the law, especially the Sabbath, it became harder and harder for Jews to accept Jesus as the Messiah because, after all, what Messiah would nullify the law, especially the Sabbath? As the texts show, some of the Jews in Thessalonica were persuaded by Paul's exposition of Messianic texts in relation to the story of Jesus. One of these, Aristarchus, was later a co-worker with Paul and even at one point a fellow prisoner. We read about that in Colossians 4 and Acts chapter 20. 
Another, Jason, was apparently wealthy enough to house the church at his home after they were no longer welcome in the synagogue, and he also provided at least a portion of the bond needed to prevent Paul's arrest in Acts 17. The God-fearing Greeks of Acts 17 are usually thought to be Gentiles who became enamoured with Judaism and attended the synagogue, but did not convert. This was a widespread phenomenon in Paul's day. These Gentiles became a natural bridge for Paul to reach those Gentiles who had no knowledge at all of Judaism or the Old Testament. The Jewish and relatively wealthy character of the original church plant in Thessalonica is emphasized in Acts 17, for example, verse 12, in which prominent Greeks also became believers. It is clear, however, that by the time 1 Thessalonians was written, the church to which Paul was writing was largely made up of Gentiles, from the labouring class. We read about that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and chapter 4. What we can see here is the universal character of the gospel, that it is for all people, all classes, all races, rich or poor, Greek or Jew, it doesn't matter. Christ's death was for the whole world. That is why our message as Seventh-day Adventists is for the whole world, and described in Revelation 14.6, without any exceptions. How important it is that we keep that mandate always before us. How important it is that we not become insular, self-absorbed, or more interested in sustaining what we have than in reaching out beyond the comfortable boundaries that we, perhaps, even subconsciously, have set for ourselves. Friday, July 6. Quoting from the Acts of the Apostles, page 380, we read, From Paul's day to the present time, God by his Holy Spirit has been calling after the Jew as well as the Gentile. There is no respect of persons with God, declared Paul. The Apostle regarded himself as debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians as well as to the Jews but he never lost sight of the decided advantages possessed by the Jews over others, chiefly because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. The gospel, he declared, is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. And in pages 221 and 222. In preaching to the Thessalonians, Paul appealed to the Old Testament prophecies concerning the Messiah. By the inspired testimony of Moses and the prophets, he clearly proved the identity of Jesus of Nazareth with the Messiah and showed that from the days of Adam it was the voice of Christ which had been speaking through patriarchs and prophets. And we're also suggested to see the extensive collection of Old Testament texts that follows on pages 222 and to 229. And then from the same book, quoting from page 381, In the closing proclamation of the gospel, 
when special work is to be done for the classes of people hitherto neglected, God expects his messengers to take particular interest in the Jewish people whom they find in all parts of the earth. As they see the Christ of the Gospel dispensation portrayed in the pages of the Old Testament scriptures, and perceive how clearly the New Testament explains the Old, their slumbering faculties will be aroused, and they will recognize Christ as the Saviour of the world. Many will, by faith, receive Christ as their Redeemer. And that brings us to two discussion questions for this week. 1. Paul approached the Jews of his day on the basis of the Messianic prophecies of the Old Testament. To what degree is such an approach useful today with Jews, especially with secular Jews, who might not even be familiar with the Old Testament prophecies? What other kinds of approaches should be considered today for secular Jews, as well as for any groups of unreached people? 2. How can the prophecies of the Bible be made to connect more effectively with our friends and neighbours? What approaches should you use with people who don't believe in the authority of the Bible? For instance, how could Daniel 2 help someone from a secular or non-biblical perspective start to trust the Bible as the Word of God? And to summarise this week's lesson. A number of important points have been made in this opening week. What we should come away with more than anything else is that just how important the Word of God is to our lives, our mission and our witness. We need to be grounded in the Bible and the truths that it teaches, not only for ourselves, but in order to be the most effective witnesses possible. And that brings us to Inside Story, our mission story for this week. It's titled... Courageous Little Evangelists I'm Amir, a missionary in the Democratic Republic of Congo. I was asked to hold evangelistic meetings in a village in the Congo where I stayed with the pastor and his family. Early every morning, my evangelistic team and I gathered for prayer before setting out to visit people and study the Bible with them before they left to work in their fields. I noticed that Gernick, a pastor's 12-year-old son, joined us for prayer. When we left the house to visit people, Gurnick came with us, but when he turned off the path, I assumed that he was going to play with his friends. So when Gurnick told me that he and two of his friends were giving Bible studies to several people, including a professor, I was surprised. I wondered if it could be true. Gurnick asked me to go with him to visit the professor's family and answer some questions they had. I gladly followed him to the professor's home. The family greeted us warmly, and I watched with deep interest as Gernick led them through another Bible study. He quoted one Bible verse after another to explain the Bible lesson. The professor praised Gernick and his friends, who had been coming to his house every day to study the Bible. I now understand why the Adventist Church is growing so fast, because even your children have the courage to give Bible studies, the professor said. We spent several hours talking about some of the Bible truths Gernick and his friends had presented to the family and answering their questions. I was impressed with the courage and faithfulness of Gernick and his friends. They gave me new insight into the role of young people in the mission of God's church. So far, some 36 people have been baptised into the church in this village, and although the professor has not yet taken his stand for truth, he has promised to continue studying the Bible with his family. 
As for Guernick and his friends, I'm sure that God has great plans for them. Already, Guernick has been appointed children's ministries leader in his church district. Your weekly mission offerings and world budget offerings help make it possible for more than 900 interdivision missionaries to serve around the world. Thank you. This has been Dr. Percy Harold with a reading of the Adult Sabbath School Bible Study Guide recorded in the studios of Christian Services for the Blind and Hearing Impaired in Queensland, Australia and brought to you by the Sabbath School Department and Adventist Media Network. Remember, God is still faithful.